Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, A Father Sacrifices His Son and a God Tests His Disciple. For Sunday, June the 29th, 2008. The Old Testament reading this week is one of the most important most famous, and most famously disturbing passages in the entire Bible. We read in Genesis chapter 22, Sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Few scriptures have provoked more art and anguish, more controversy and commentary, than Abraham's radical obedience to God's improbable command. Abraham lied when he told the Egyptians that Sarah was his sister. He fathered a proxy son, Ishmael, with his slave girl, Hagar. He laughed with Sarah in disbelief when God promised them a son in their old age. This nomadic believer who had left the known of Haran for the unknown of Canaan, because he believed that God had commanded him to do so in order to bless the entire world, this same Abraham now faced a preposterous test of faith. Would he believe that God really had commanded him to slit the throat of his son, his only son and the son of promise, and then burn him in an act of child sacrifice? And if he did believe that God had so commanded him, would he further act upon that conviction and perform the hideous deed? In his book, Fear and Trembling, from 1843, one of the most provocative treatments of this passage, the Danish writer Soren Kierkegaard devoted an entire book to this story. Kierkegaard recalls how he heard this Bible story as a child and how the older he got, the more his admiration and enthusiasm for the story grew, while the less and less he understood it. He puts, he puts himself in Abraham's shoes, as it were, and shudders as he contemplates how Abraham might have thought, felt, and acted. Kierkegaard imagines four different scenarios. In version 1.0, Isaac lunges at Abraham's legs and begs for his life. When he looks at his father Abraham's face, his gaze was wild. His whole being was sheer terror. Abraham then rebukes Isaac and screams, Do you think it is God's command? No, it is my desire. Abraham then prays softly, Lord God in heaven, I thank you. It is better that Isaac believes that I'm a monster 
than that he should lose faith in you. Here Abraham tries to protect God by blaming himself for the atrocious command. At least this way, Abraham reasons, Isaac won't believe that God is a monster. In version 2.0, Abraham and Isaac journey in total silence. At Mount Moriah, Abraham builds the altar and then wields the knife. Then, at the last minute, God provides a ram in Isaac's place. In fact, if you remember, this is how the Genesis narrative unfolds. But Kierkegaard adds a twist by imagining the consequences. Abraham obeyed, and Isaac was saved. But in the process, Abraham was deeply traumatized and psychologically scarred for the remainder of his life. He could not forget that God had ordered him to do this. His eyes were darkened, and he saw joy no more. In this second scenario, we wonder about the lifelong consequences to Abraham's faith, not to mention his very humanity. In his act of faith, did he lose his faith? In version 3.0, Kierkegaard highlights Abraham's tragic regret, agony, and incomprehension at having committed an unthinkable murder. What could he have been thinking to kill his own son? Abraham threw himself down on his face. He prayed to God to forgive him his sin, that he had been willing to sacrifice Isaac, that the father had forgotten his duty to the son. Surely, in other words, it's the universal ethical duty for parents to love their children, not to murder them. And so in this third scenario, Kierkegaard imagines Abraham concluding that he was wrong to believe that God had told him to murder Isaac. How could he have ever imagined that he had heard such a command from God? Abraham 4.0 concocts an entirely different scenario. In this rendition, Abraham suffers a failure of nerve, an explicit act of disobedience, or conversely, you might say, a return to his senses and sensibility. In this imagined scenario, Abraham believes the command of God, but he fails to act. He cannot bring himself to slay Isaac, and as a consequence, Isaac loses his faith. Not a word of this is ever said in the world, and Isaac never talked to anyone about what he had seen, and Abraham did not suspect that anyone had seen writes Kierkegaard. I love how Kierkegaard then concludes his four imaginary scenarios. Thus, and in many similar ways, did the man of whom we speak ponder this event. That must stand as the Bible's greatest understatement.
Abraham thus faced at least four interrelated challenges to believing the command of God and then acting upon that belief. First, he would have been entirely reasonable to conclude that he was being deceived by malign influences, sickness, for example, demons, hallucinations, infirmities of old age, and that the visions and voices that he heard originated not with a loving God, but from a temptation of the worst evil sort. If that was the case, he would have obeyed by dismissing the voices as delusions. Similarly, we can imagine Abra we can imagine praising Abraham if he had concluded that he had deceived himself through religious zealotry couched in pious, pious platitudes. Today, we invoke this rationale to condemn in the harshest terms suicide bombers in Israel and Iraq, or Christians who bomb abortion clinics, all of whom claim that God told them to commit the atrocity. Third, at a simple level, the command of God challenged Abraham to embrace the absurd, the irrational, and the unintelligible. What sense did it make to murder the son of promise through whom God had promised to bless all the earth? And then fourth, and most obviously, Abraham had to transcend normal ethical expectations. Good parents love and nourish their children. They don't murder them in religiously inspired violence and claim that God told me to do it. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac is one of those passages in Scripture that will always remain opaque. I doubt that any interpretation will fully satisfy us. It provokes so many difficult questions. Did God really command child sacrifice? Might God ask me to do something similar today? How would we respond to a believer who invoked this passage to abort her baby as an act of obedience to what she claimed she heard as God's command? Does the Bible sanction religious violence? Should we listen to our community when they advise us that we're deceived in deceiving? Or should we trump them by invoking the argument, God told me to do it? What about the divine bait-and-switch in this passage, where God asked Abraham to do the incomprehensible, and then at the last minute provides an alternative? This is Kierkegaard's version 2.0 that smacks of something like psychic torture. I'm reminded of Dostoevsky's last-minute reprieve from the firing squad. How could Abraham possibly have known whether Isaac would be spared, as it so happened? Whether he might kill Isaac only to have God raise him from the dead, which is the interpretation of Hebrews 11, 17-19? or whether God might have him murder Isaac only to provide him with yet a third son of promise after Ishmael, after Isaac. Abraham 
could not have known the answers to these questions in advance. And I take that simple observation as an important theme of the story. He acted wholeheartedly without absolute certainty. He acted as a solitary individual with no guarantees or clarity, knowing that he might be horribly wrong and deeply deceived by himself or others, knowing that his actions would merit the opprobrium of his family and community, knowing that his act would be irreversible and contrary to the everyday standards of ethics and rationality. In his radical obedience, to use the words from Philippians 2, 12, and 13, Abraham worked out his salvation with fear and trembling, with palpable dread and humility, before a God who asks everything, absolutely everything, of us today. For books this week, I review Mohammed Yunus, Banker to the Poor, Micro-Lending and the Battle Against World Poverty. New York Public Affairs, originally published in 1999, but with successive editions, 273 pages. Mohammed Yunus was born in 1940, the third of 14 children to an extremely devout Muslim family in Chittagong, the largest port city in Bangladesh. After studies at Chittagong University and then University of Colorado in Vanderbilt, where he earned his PhD in economics, Yunus returned to help nation build in Bangladesh, which had declared its independence from Pakistan in 1971. The independence movement had taken its toll Three million people were dead, and ten million people were refugees. And then, in 1974, a famine struck. As he tried to alleviate the broad and deep poverty in his new homeland, Eunice came to dread his economics lectures. He felt that they were tragically far removed from the everyday lives of normal people. In a theme that would characterize much of the rest of his life, Eunice almost completely abandoned classical book learning in favor of listening to and learning directly from the extreme poor, the millions of Bangladeshis living off two cents a day. Then in 1976, he loaned $27 to 42 villagers and thus was born what eventually became the Grameen Bank. Grameen meaning rural. As of the publication of this revised autobiography in 2003, the Grameen Bank and its many replicants had made $3.8 billion of microloans to 2.4 million families in 100 countries. The borrowers themselves own 93% of the bank equity, 95% of the loan recipients are women, and the repayment rate on the loans is 98%. And so for all that, 
In 2006, Eunice and the Grameen Bank won the Nobel Peace Prize. Eunice is an excellent writer and storyteller. He shares at length about the many criticisms, myths, and prejudices he's had to face, especially from what he calls the obtuse ineptitude of governments and the sclerotic bureaucracy of aid organizations. He's particularly critical of the World Bank. Eunice has tremendous faith in the initiative, skill, resilience, and creativity of the poor. They're the ultimate entrepreneurs, in his opinion. Not one single Grameen borrower, he likes to brag, requires any special training, or any collateral, for that matter. Conversely, Eunice also believes that the poor have many things to teach the rich. When the World Bank President Barbara Conable bragged to Eunice about hiring the best minds in the world, he responded that hiring smart economists does not necessarily translate into policies and programs that help the poor. Spurning conventional wisdom about development aid in economic categories of the liberal left and the free market right, Grameen's success speaks for itself. As a follow-up book, see Eunice's newest book called Creating a World Without Poverty, Social Business in the Future of Capitalism, New York Public Affairs, 2007. Mohammed Yunus, Banker to the Poor. For film this week, I review a film called Nan King from 2007. In August of 1937, Japan bombed and then invaded China's capital city of Nanking. In the ensuing six weeks, some 200,000 people, mainly citizens, were slaughtered. Tens of thousands of others endured unspeakable atrocities that included mass executions, torture, widespread rape, burning, and looting. This documentary film draws on archival film footage, interviews with Chinese survivors and Japanese soldiers who witnessed the atrocities, and then the letters and diaries of a small group of Westerners who stayed behind to help the Chinese, despite the orders of the American Embassy to evacuate. These Westerners, mainly missionaries, saved some 250,000 Chinese by establishing a two-square-mile safety zone in Nanking. The film switches back and forth between the Japanese atrocities and the heroism of the three missionaries, George Fitch, whose secret 16mm movies documented the horrors, a surgeon named Bob Wilson, and Minnie Votran, who headed the Jinling Women's College. And then their leader, the improbable Nazi businessman John Rabe, whose 800-page diary became a piece of key evidence. To a person, the Chinese still venerate these four people as their saviors. After the war, a tribunal convicted 25 Japanese leaders of war crimes. Just one warning, 
parts of this film are very difficult to watch. Nan King from the year 2007. And finally this week, we begin a series of poems by John Donne. John Donne lived from 1572 to 1631. The title of the poem this week is Annunciation about the birth of Jesus. Salvation to all that will is nigh. That all, which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die, lo, faithful virgin, yields himself to lie in prison, in thy womb. And though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear, taken from thence, flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spears time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest conceived. Yea, thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and shuttest in little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. Annunciation by John Donne. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June 29th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.